You know, I think you should just outright cut off the sleeves on that shirt and turn it into a and just turn it into a muscle no, shirt. No, but I like it as a t-shirt. It work. It works on you. It is almost muscle shirt season. Muscle shirt season. Muscle shirt season. That's the backup title for the episode. Muscle shirt season. <laughs> there is not a single muscle shirt in this whole movie. Uh, I don't know. Doesn't uh, doesn't uh, Razor Fist wear something oh, kind of like, like a vest, a sleeveless vest? It's more of a vest, but anyway, Shang Chi has a moment by himself. We can do this all day. Episode thirty. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings movie review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies and shows in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going through the MCU chronologically and discussing our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Mark Villa. I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-host, Emily Griswold, over there in Studio E. Good evening, Emily. Sweltering. It is swel- it's, it's been a hot. It's been a hot, uh, it's been a hot week here in the, vicinity, in the nation's capital and vicinity. It actually wasn't terribly hot today. But uh, no, it was cold today. But that didn't negate. That didn't take away all the heat residual, that accumulated. The residual heat. Well, I noticed that this morning because it was only like fifty some degrees this morning, but our house was still really warm. Like the th- we had, we didn't have the air or anything on, and the thermostat still read, still read like seventy two, seventy three. And I can only assume it was from I all that. I wish it was seventy two or seventy three. How Hopefully, cold do you keep it in the winter? How cold do we keep what in the winter? The house. What's the yeah? What's your heater set to? Our house. Well, remember our house gets our house is really cold because we have that big crawl space underneath. I think in the winter, if we're lucky, in the winter sometimes we keep it in like mid to high sixties, and we just That's put on cold. sweaters. I don't, it, it is too cold. I don't. I don't disagree with you. But we've got this stupid crawl space under our under our condo that we've never bothered to try getting insulated because we don't know how much we'd have to pay someone some poor soul to crawl all the way down because we're in the end unit and the doorway to the crawl space is on the other end. So some poor soul will have to crawl all the way over because uh, it's only like a four foot high crawl space. Um, anyway, well, I'm sure there's like ghouls and dead bodies and stuff under there. Oh, I've been under there before. There's dead all sorts of stuff. Yeah. There's dead dead rats, mice, crickets, um, people. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Monsters. Hoffa for all we Jimmy Hoffa could be under our condo right now for all I know. The girl from the ring. The girl from the ring. She could be under there. You don't know. Alien parasites that will take over our body. Yeah. But anyway, so it's it's kind of it's kind of hot over there in Emily's over there in Studio E. Maybe we can cool things down with a cool movie review this week. Uh-huh. Right. Oh uh, yeah, okay, that was pretty lame, but I couldn't think of anything else. So we are after our our brief but not so brief foray into the TV universe uh, in the MCU. We are back to reviewing a feature film. We got a review of Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, moving our way through Phase Four. But first, even though it has been what seems like a million years since we last recorded, I think we do still have some MCU news. <laughs> I think sort of this this kind of falls under the rubric of sort of an overall big sort of news thing. Uh, Marvel's finally decided to slow down kind of their their production schedule and their release schedule. A whole lot of reasons for this. Some of it having to do with you know getting the effects right, 
after a lot of uh, controversy around Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Some people just think that they've been oversaturated. So the MCU is slowing down a little bit. A lot of release dates have been affected. Uh, the Marvels, which was supposed to come out this summer, has been moved to November the 10th. That is going to be the last feature film to come out this year. We've still got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 coming out May the 5th. Tickets just went on sale a few days before this recording. And they just re- they just announced that Secret Invasion, the series, will be dropping on Disney Plus on June the 21st. We don't yet have a release date for Loki Season 2, but we're imagining it will probably be sometime either in the late summer or early fall. I imagine it'll be sometime in the fall now that they just announced that uh, the Star Wars programming is starting in August, so they're probably going to wait a little bit before Loki. The aforementioned Star Wars programming being the Ahsoka Tano show, which was just announced at uh, Star Wars Celebration today over in the UK. Um, Another reason they may be delaying Season 2 of of Loki. I don't know this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised as I'm sure many of you have read um, Jonathan, actor Jonathan Majors who plays Kang and who played uh, he who was it he who he who what was the name he of the who, character? No he, name. Who he who remains. He who remains. No name. <laughs> he who remains uh, was arrested in New York uh, a couple a week or two ago on charges of assault. All sorts of weird stuff has happened about that, putting aside the fact that <laughs> there's a good possibility that someone was hurt in all of this. It sounds like Disney is, is uh, I don't know, I get the feeling Disney is trying to figure out what the heck to do about that situation. Uh, something else was happening. Yeah, all sorts of weird stuff going on in the MCU. You know, uh, one of their uh, one of the producers, Victoria Alonso, who's been you know one of Kevin Feige's right hand people since day one. She was recently let go by the company after she was helping to bankroll uh, a feature film, or not a feature. Well, it was a feature film, but it was like a, I think a documentary short subject. Actually, it might have won an Oscar a couple weeks back. She, it's an Amazon production, and she was a producer, and she insisted on being a producer despite the fact that it was a breach of contract with Disney and supposedly that is why she was let go because she refused to not work on that film anymore. Although some people think that because she's also in charge of visual effects with all the problems that uh, they've been having regarding people at the visual effects houses that Disney hires for Marvel movies complaining about you know being treated badly and bad working conditions. A lot of that leads back to her or led back to her allegedly. So who knows that could be, have something to do with it too who knows maybe we'll find out one of these days and i think that's just about it although i did i what oh jeremy runner oh the uh the the the, uh the interview has that already dropped the diane so yeah i don't know i just follow his instagram and he was walking today so oh that's fantastic yeah because diane sawyer interviewed him and i know i think the interview was supposed to drop either a day or two ago like on on like ABC's website, and I think they were going to put it on Disney Plus. I'm not 100 percent sure, but we I want to look for that. I think it's it's sort of kind of time to coincide with his uh, renovation series, which is dropping on Disney Plus next week. I think I think the 12th of April. But yeah, he's up and about. He's walking now. We still don't know all the details, but he seems to be making one hell of a good recovery, all things considered. You know, so we're very, very happy that he has been thriving after that very scary situation that happened on New Year's Day. And I did read. Uh, I did read somewhere they think that uh, they think that Venom Three is going to drop sometime in late 2024. Ooh, I don't know if you read anything about that. Ooh, so all you Venom fans, and Tom Hardy set to return as Eddie Brock in that film. 
Imagine just, if they put a different person. Imagine if they just like didn't bring Tom Hardy back for whatever reason and didn't explain anything about why there's a new guy. You know, for all I'll tell you this. I'll say I'll say something. For all of my various opinions about Venom, at this point I cannot I honestly cannot see anyone not doing that role other than Tom Hardy. Oh yeah, he's great. Even even I would be regardless I just think of how it'd be really I can't funny. Just replace the actor. Yeah. And just don't explain anyone. anything. Don't tell anybody. New guy. New Eddie. Don't, don't, don't think about it too much. We don't want to will it into existence. I don't know who. It'd be even funnier if it was like somebody else from the movie or like somebody, <laughs> from, somebody from Marvel and they Woody just Har- like. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. If they just like recast somebody. Tom from, Holland. Tom yeah, Holland. Yeah. It would be hilarious. I would God, totally that would be, be into it. You know, and I would, I would, go, I would go see that movie. I would totally go see Tom Holland playing Venom. That would be funny as hell. It would be really funny. But anyway, so that's it for MCU news as far as we know. <laughs> We're a little loosey-goosey tonight. It's been a long week. Uh, let's get on to uh, the main event. We are here to talk about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a film I was very excited to talk about. It opened in the U.S. on September the 3rd, 2021. It was the first MCU film to release exclusively in theaters after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and after Scarlett Johansson's little Black Widow lawsuit against the Disney Corporation. It stars Simu Liu, Aquafina, Mengerzang, Florian Muncianu, now Academy Award winner Michelle Yeoh, Sir Ben Kingsley, and Tony Leung. The film was directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who had only directed a few feature films by then, including the film adaptation of the memoir Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which stars Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson, incidentally. He has since been tapped to direct Avengers The Kang Dynasty, so I wouldn't be surprised if we get a heavy dose of Shang-Chi in that Avengers movie, which is, I can't remember when that thing is supposed to come out. I think it's like 2025 now, like summer 2025. The film screenplay is by David Callaham, Destin Daniel Cretton and Andrew Lanham, based on a story by Dave Callahan and Destin Daniel Cretton. At the box office, the film had a budget of somewhere between 150 and 200 million and ended up grossing 432.2 million at the box office. Given that movie theaters had just started reopening that summer prior and that many were still reluctant to go to the movies at that time, this was a significant hit, not just for Marvel and for Disney, but for a film industry that was facing a gravely uncertain future. As up to that point, only Fast and Furious 9, which had opened in June of that year, made more money. I think they pulled in about $725-726 million on that film. Overall impressions of the film. It should be noted that the character of Shang-Chi as presented in the film is radically different from that of Shang-Chi in the original Master of Kung Fu comic series created by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin in the 1970s during the whole martial arts craze. This is undoubtedly a good thing, as those comics, beautifully drawn as they were, were also horrifically racist. In the comics, Shang-Chi is the son of Fu Manchu, and as you can imagine, there are all sorts of stereotypes in those comics in terms of the writing and how the characters are portrayed and drawn, and you just can't do that today, nor should you. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings feels to me, my quick pitch is, it feels like Black Panther meets Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. You've got this story about a mythology of a, of a particular culture, a particular people being told in sort of a superhero type setting. So in that way, it's very reminiscent to me of Black Panther. It just kind of has 
a similar vibe. But as I said, it's a lot like a it's like a wushu film, like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And it just kind of plays like this beautiful historical fantasy epic with these incredible martial arts sequences. And I just thought it was a really, really special film. If Spider-Man No Way Home didn't exist, Shang-Chi would be the best movie out of this phase for me. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I I, uh, I, I do think it has the best music. I we, really yeah. like the music. We should tell you. We'll talk about that yeah. later. I think it's, it's a great it's a great score, and I love what they did with the pop song soundtrack. Kind of trying to recapture the the same sort of vibe that they did with the Kendrick Lamar Black Panther soundtrack. Only this time, it's you know all Asian artists. The West Coast sort of music group Eighty Eight Rising put that together. There's a lot of K-pop. You sent it to and me. Stuff. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I love it. I love that soundtrack. Um, it's it's it speaks to me a little bit more than than the the Kendrick Lamar Black Panther one. It's just I I've played it over and over and over again. And uh, and uh, in addition to that, the score by Joel West is really is really good too. I I do this. I was listening to that over the weekend. In fact, so lots of good stuff in this film. I have it ranked uh, right now. It's there. There are now thirty one films in the MCU, including Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. And I've still got this one. I've still got Shang-Chi ranked at number nine. It's been like that for some time. It's just ahead of Thor and just behind the original Ant-Man. I put it at eight. So it's just behind Black Widow, which I put at seven and a half because I'm doing halves right now. (laughs) And the first Captain America at eight and a half. Mm, That is really high. That is really high. I was tempted to put it ahead of Black Widow. That's why I put the halves in there because I think they're kind of like together. Like, mm-hmm. I think they sort of fit the same vibe, and I like them both equally, but I didn't want to have two sevens and two eights. This was the first film that I had seen after COVID started. It was the first film I saw in the theater after COVID started, and I don't know if it was because I was just starved for going to the movies or because I was starved for seeing a new Marvel movie in the theaters or what, but I just I just remember sitting in the theater just completely enraptured uh, watching this film. I was just so... It just washed over me. I enjoyed it so much. It was just... There was just something about it, this incredible epic adventure that looked great, had what I thought was a very good story, was well acted. Oh, it's a great film. (laughs) We're already overselling it. That's good. So anyway, let's get into the meat of the movie. We open with a voiceover narration. About a thousand years ago, Zhu Wenwu discovered the mystical Ten Rings, presumably in China, although that's never explicitly stated. They granted him superhuman powers, including immortality. He could have used them for good, but all he wanted was power. We see him using the rings to lead an army on horseback into some ancient stronghold, and he just decimates everything in his path with the rings. We then learn that he used the Ten Rings to build the Ten Rings organization, and over the centuries they spread all over the world, stealing wealth, toppling governments, conducting assassinations, and changing the course of history, all from the shadows, as the narration says. Sounds a lot like Hydra and the Red Room. I mean, any other Illuminati Freemason-style total control of the world for centuries from the shadow storyline. Otherwise, we wouldn't have conspiracy theories, I guess. (laughs) This one might have been the first. This may have been the first secret evil organization. The actual first. At least in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We fast forward to 1996. Not satisfied with the power and wealth he's accumulated over the last millennium, Wen Wu sets out to find the mythical village of Ta Lo, 
a place said to harbor mystical beasts and where the people practice a martial arts style from the gods. As his SUV drives through a bamboo forest, the trees come alive and force the vehicle off a cliff. Wenwu uses the rings to escape before it plummets over the edge. No surprise that Wenwu nonchalantly lets his henchman die without a second thought when that SUV goes over the cliff. Well, when you bounce around for a millennia and everyone else only lives like 70 or 80 years, a few lost lives is no big deal. I, I get it. Also, you know, I've got my boys, you know, Bucky and Peter, Tom Holland's Peter, and I guess Andrew Garfield's Peter also, since he's now in the universe. But Wenwu's kind of a hottie. Like, I know he's supposed to be the baddie technically, but if villain, why hot? Tony Leung is a very good-looking guy. I, I, I admittedly have kind of a blind spot with a lot of uh, like the, the Hong. I think he's mainly involved in a lot of Hong Kong cinema and so forth. But he's probably done a bunch of the historical epics too, some wushu epics. And he is, I know, within those circles, a very big name. He's a very, very well-known quantity, very well respected and well regarded. And uh, yeah, he's a pretty good-looking guy. I think he looks more attractive than Simu. Ooh, that's a hot take. That's a hot Shots MCU fired. Take. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag shots fired. Well, Simu, if you're listening, <laughs> she said it, not me. Wenwu carries on on foot and encounters a young woman in the forest, our narrator, Ying Li. She tells him to leave, but he refuses. They fight, with Li ultimately kicking Wenwu's ass. She then says, That was the first time I met your father. In the best tradition of Wushu martial arts films, this fight isn't so much a fight as much as it is a dance, with Lee countering every one of Wenwu's harsh, aggressive moves with this smooth, balletic, flowing motion. As you watch Tony Leung and Fala Chen moving with each other, you can see Wenwu and Lee starting to fall in love right there. It's, it's a breathtakingly beautiful scene, and it's like a big dance. Wenwu and Lee fall in love and eventually have a child. Shang-Chi. When he is a young boy, Li tells him that the people of Ta-Lo are imbued with the magic of a dragon known as the Great Protector. Li left Ta-Lo to be with Wen-Wu and her new family, so she no longer has that power. She gives Shang-Chi a necklace with a jade pendant and tells him that whenever he feels lost, it will guide him home. I just want to say I do like that the whole first like nine minutes of this movie was not in English. Like, I really enjoyed that with movies like Black Panther and Shang-Chi, we're getting sort of a wider example of the shared human experience by going to other places. And I think we talked about this with Black Panther, too. Experiencing different languages and cultures, you know, sure, it's still a superhero movie or whatever, but it's almost like, air quotes, proof that everyone wants to be a superhero. Everyone goes through hard things. We all share the same base level experiences no matter where you live. And even if you have magical powers from a dragon and live to be a thousand years old. There's a certain, yeah, like you said, there's a certain universality to the, a lot of the stories that Marvel tells. It's like, on the one hand, it doesn't matter what culture you're from or, or who you are or where you're from. Everyone has challenges and uh, things they have to overcome and things that they feel they need to prove and things they need to do. But at the same time, I do like how different cultures, I guess, approach that differently. We saw that, like you said, in Black Panther. We see that now in Shang-Chi, the whole bit with the language. I love the fact I love the fact that we've got to look at subtitles for a little bit. It's it's kind of a I think it's just a good thing. It's a good thing to to see and hear and listen to something that is unfamiliar. I'm a quarter Chinese myself. My paternal grandmother was from mainland China. My father's from the Philippines. Uh, so I am part Asian. I married into an Asian family. 
And so this film does have a bit of a, you know, a bit more significance than it otherwise might just because of that. We adopted our son from China. Oh, it's just so good. Fast forward to the present day where Shang-Chi wakes up in his apartment in San Francisco and looks at a postcard with a drawing of the Great Protector on the front, but no message on the back. It is addressed to him and has a return address in Macau. So Ant-Man, Shang-Chi, Venom, all San Francisco. It's like the New York of the West Coast. We then get some glimpses of Shang-Chi's life now. He goes by the name Sean. He's a valet parking attendant at an upscale hotel, along with his best friend Katie. Apparently, he can speak several languages. Katie is a skilled driver, quote, the Asian Jeff Gordon, she proclaims, and has an honors degree from Berkeley. When they're not working, they hang out, have fun, and really seem to enjoy life. That scene at the fancy restaurant with Katie and Sean and their married couple friends is the most 20-something-year-old experience, I think, ever. Especially when I was working in retail and I had a bunch of married friends with regular 9-to-5 jobs and, like, a house and kids and stuff, you know, who are just like, just apply yourself. You have all the things. Just do better. Do like us. <laughs> like, I know they mean well. Like, clearly her friend, the friends are just, like, trying to be helpful, but, like, that is the most 20-something-year-old experience. It's probably, yes, it's probably the absolute worst thing you could tell someone. I never had an experience that was quite like that, but when I was in my 20s, I did have a couple of folks who had gotten married fairly recently at that time. and Graduated you know, college was, straight into a, like, accounting firm job making six figures and... It was it was definitely sort of an it was definitely sort of an odd dynamics at times, you know, sort of their world and my world didn't always mesh, but... We still got along. I find it so refreshing that we have a film depicting a realistic, loving, platonic friendship between a man and a woman. Because those friendships do exist, despite what some might say. I mean, hell, one of my closest friends is a woman. We talk a lot. We go hiking whenever we can. She's even my co-host on this really cool podcast about Marvel movies. Oh, moi? Perhaps. You have a second secret Marvel podcast that you haven't shared with anyone? Shh, don't tell anybody. We Can Do This All Day is my A number one podcasting priority. Trying to think of what your your, <laughs> it's hidden, also my own... your hidden podcast title would be. We Hate it's Venom. Also, it's also my only one. No, no, no. Although I have I have thought about... I do fantasize every once in a while about doing like a like a Star Wars podcast with someone. Or oh, yes. Please do a, that without me. I don't need that in my life. <laughs> or just doing some general geek just banter thing where I just go off on stuff. Being part Asian myself and having married into a Chinese immigrant family, as I mentioned a little while ago, I've learned quite a bit about the culture over the years. And I can confidently say that the scene in Katie's family's apartment is ridiculously accurate. You've got the three generations living under one roof with the youngest, presumably, being the first born in the US. You've got the reverence for traditional cultural values that quote, you know, moving on is an American idea. And of course, you've got the immigrant parent chiding her child for her choice of occupation. I like it how Katie's mom says, you know, why Gong didn't move here from Hunan so you could park cars for a living? I've heard that before. <laughs> Not necessarily in my wife's family, but just in various circles that we've, that we've been in. And said child struggling with wanting to be independent and making her mother proud. One morning, Sean and Katie are on a bus on their way to work, when they are accosted by a group of burly guys who demand, in Mandarin, that Sean turn over his jade pendant to him. Katie tells them that they clearly have the wrong guy. 
what is it that Katie says? Does he look like the kind of guy that can fight? Sean had earlier talked about how Katie saved him from some bullies back in high school. One of the goons hurts Katie. Sean, seemingly out of nowhere, explodes into action, engaging in intense hand-to-hand -hand combat with the three goons, dispatching them handily with serious martial arts skills that Katie clearly has no idea that he had. Who are you? Katie muses. Moments later, a big dude with a retractable sword, with some sort of energy enhancement on the blade, for a right hand, Razor Fist, comes at Sean from the back of the bus. As he and Sean fight, Razor Fist chops up a significant portion of the bus, severing the brake line and knocking the driver unconscious. Sean momentarily regains control of the bus, but has to hand it over to Katie so he can continue to fight off Razor Fist. Sean is able to evacuate the passengers to the front of the bus, and force Razor Fist to the rear section, which then separates itself from the front thanks to all the damage. Despite numerous obstructions, like other cars and a garbage truck, and a nasty hairpin turn, Katie is able to safely navigate the rest of the bus to a stop, but Razor Fist makes off with the pendant. I love this fight. Up to this point, we had never really seen a fight this intense since maybe Black Widow or one of the Captain America movies, but this kind of full-on martial arts fight is a first for Marvel, and major kudos to Simu Liu, who had absolutely no martial arts training prior to being cast for this film whatsoever. Despite that steep learning curve and very short timetable, he looks amazing, I think, and totally owns this fight. I like that it's on a bus. Like, that's such a limited battlefield, if you will, and the people who choreographed this fight use the spaces really well. Have you ever seen Speed with Keanu Reeves and what's her name? No. It's a great action flick. Speed with Keanu Reeves and oh god, what is her name? She was in uh, what is it? The the Gravity and oh, Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. It's a cool action flick. I highly recommend it. It's like it's it's Die Hard on a bus almost, <laughs> sort of, kind of, but not exactly. Ignoring Katie's demands for an explanation of what just happened, she and Sean go back to his apartment. He shows her the postcard, saying he thinks it's from his sister, and contains the address at which he's staying. He says he needs to go to Macau and warn her, for fear that the same goons, who were sent by their father, are after her next. Katie, still dumbstruck by all these revelations, insists on accompanying him. Shang-Chi and Katie board a plane bound for China. In a flashback, Sean, who explains to Katie that his real name is Shang-Chi, tells of how his father began training him to be an assassin for the Ten Rings upon his mother's death, keeping in mind that he is just a child at this time. His younger sister, Xiaoling, was not permitted to train, but she observed Shang-Chi's training very carefully and taught herself. By the time he was 14, Shang-Chi was the most skilled combatant in the Ten Rings, and Wen Wu sent him on his first assignment. When Katie asks him if he went through with it, he shakes his head and tells her he just ran away. What was the bit with the flight attendant and the meal in the scene on the plane? Was that supposed to be funny? Because I don't think that it was. It was just kind of awkward to me. I guess they needed a break in the story from the intense stuff, but it was weird. I do, however, like the little argument slash discussion about Shang-Chi's name change. Like, I was only 14. Like, to change it from Shang-Chi to Sean. Listen, it's hard. Shang-Chi and Katie arrive at the address on the postcard in Macau. It is a darkened high-rise building surrounded by bamboo scaffolding. When they get inside, they discover that it is a massive secret fight club, the Golden Daggers, that broadcasts fights and takes bets on them all over the dark web. John John, 
the guy who greets them upon their arrival, points out that the two of them are now celebrities because video footage taken on the bus back in San Francisco has gone viral. As such, Shang-Chi, known to John John as Busboy, <laughs> I thought that was funny, has been slotted against his will to participate in a high-profile fight at the club due to the recent loss of a fighter. First off, those of you who watch The Daily Show regularly may recognize Malaysian comedian Ronnie Cheng as John John. Second, in one of the smaller fights in the club, we see a Black Widow named Helen. She was actually one of the Black Widows we saw briefly in the Black Widow film towards the end. Finally, we get to see the center ring fight that precedes Shang-Chi's fight, and it is none other than Wong versus Emil Blonsky, aka The Abomination, played for the first time since 2008's Incredible Hulk by Tim Roth in a motion capture suit. After the fight, we see both of them retreat through a portal to a room containing some sort of holding cell. Mild spoiler, this will become very important when we get around to reviewing She-Hulk. Shang-Chi goes into the ring and ends up having to face off against his own sister, Xiaoling. She comes at him with absolutely everything she has, furiously. We then get a flashback to a conversation the two of them had right before he left all those years ago. She tells him how much she misses their mother as she practices her forms. She begs Shang-Chi not to leave. He tells her that he'll be back in three days. Back in the present day, Xiaoling knocks Shang-Chi out. I'm a big brother to a younger sister. If I did something like that to her, would she beat the living crap out of me when she saw me again? Maybe. I don't know. But I do know that, yes, she'd probably be pretty pissed off at me. I'd beat my sister up. For sure. Like, out of love, currently. But if she'd <laughs> left me as a young kid when we didn't get along the way we do right now, out of anger, it would not have taken much. <laughs> I'm only doing this because I love you. Yeah, like, if she was doing something silly. But back when we did not like each other, I would for sure. Shang-Chi and Katie meet with Zha Ling after the fight. Turns out, Zha Ling owns the club. She bought it after escaping from her father, after Shang-Chi never came back. She realized at that time that she didn't need Shang-Chi then, and she doesn't need him now. So Shang-Chi asks her why she sent him the postcard. She didn't. It suddenly dawns on both of them that this was a setup by Wen Wu to get the two of them together in one place. The entire building goes into lockdown as Zha Ling and Zhang Zhan sneak out, leaving Shang-Chi and Katie trapped on the upper floors. Scores of members of the Ten Rings, led by Razor Fist, descend upon the building looking for Shang-Chi and Zha Ling. Shang-Chi breaks a window, and he and Katie begin making their way downwards by way of the scaffolding surrounding the building. Shang-Chi breaks off to confront the goons and buy time for Katie. Before Katie can get very far, she's accosted by Ten Rings guys and is almost killed, but is saved at the last minute by Zha Ling, who then heads upwards to help her brother. Wen Wu's top assassin, the masked death dealer, who also assisted in training Shang-Chi as a boy, arrives on the scene and makes off with Zha Ling's jade pendant. Shang-Chi pursues him into one of the unused levels of the building and fights him. Just as he gets the upper hand and is about to finish off the death dealer, Wen Wu himself arrives and disarms Shang-Chi with the rings. He takes Shang-Chi, Zha Ling, and Katie prisoner and escorts them back to his compound. This fight is insane and beautiful, and I'm not sure I have any more superlatives left in my vocabulary to describe it. It's that good. I can't say enough about how incredible Simu Liu looks in this fight. So, like, sometimes you gotta do crazy things to survive, but there is not enough drive or will to survive in my heart. There is not enough money in the world 
to get me to do what they did to like go on the scaffolding and use that as a escape route. No way, it's not going to happen. I will take my chances in the building. I've always thought it was kind of funny how just sort of casually they go there and sort of step out there. Even even Katie, who is clearly scared out of her mind, goes out there a little more willingly than I would. Nah, I'll, I'll <laughs> even, risk it. Even, even under the circumstances. They clearly weren't successful, so I'll risk it. I'll stay in the <laughs> building. Thank you. Xiaoling and Katie are escorted to Xiaoling's old room. Xiaoling tells Katie that after their mom died, she was not allowed to train with the others. So she watched carefully and trained herself to be even better than them. She tells Katie that if she keeps quiet and doesn't say anything, that Wenwu will eventually forget that she's there, as he did with her after mom died. She ran off at the age of 16. Shang-Chi goes to his own room, where a thick wooden pillar stands in the center. When he was training as a child, he used to practice punching the pillar till his knuckles bled. Today, Shang-Chi can see the indentation in the wood where his fist landed. He remembers his father telling him that if he wanted to have the rings one day, that he'd have to demonstrate that he was strong enough to carry them. The theme of living up to parental expectations, something frequently associated with Asian cultures, especially among first-generation children of immigrants, is a recurring theme in this film. And I love how Destin Cretton weaves that theme into this superhero story. At dinner, Wen Wu tells Shang-Chi that he always knew where his children were after they left. He says he gave Shang-Chi 10 years to figure out what to do with his life, and now he's decided it's time for him to take his place by his side. He then tells of how, several years earlier, a terrorist needed a boogeyman to help bring America to its knees. So he appropriated the Ten Rings and called himself, for lack of Wenwu's real name, The Mandarin, obviously referring to Aldrich Killian and Trevor Slattery in Iron Man 3. To quote Wenwu, he named his figurehead after a chicken dish, and it worked. Wenwu, for all of the centuries and drama and never-ending power, yada, 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 is such a dad. I can almost hear the Home Depot theme song playing in the background. <laughs> he then talks of how meeting Lee changed his life, how she opened him up to a part of himself he didn't realize was there. So that they could be together, she left Ta Lo, and he took off the rings and put them away. I finally found something worth growing old for, he says. We then see flashbacks to Shang-Chi and Xiaoling as children, living happily with their parents in Wenwu's compound, now their home. When she died, he was lost for many years. While Shang-Chi and Xiaoling were away, Wenwu re-immersed himself in his studies of Ta Lo, desperate for connection with Li. He discovered that there is a gate deep within the mountains there, and he believes that she is waiting for him there. Wen Wu says she spoke to him, asking him to help free her from her people. He says that she asked the elders of Ta Lo if she and Wen Wu could stay there when they first fell in love, but they refused. He is convinced that the elders have her locked up behind the gate to punish her for leaving, and that she is trying to tell him to come and free her by leaving him clues, most notably the two jade necklaces. He brings everyone to a room containing a shrine to Li and puts the two pieces of jade into the eye slots of a carving of a dragon, the Great Protector, I assume. A map of the forest outside Ta Lo appears on the floor, along with a representation of a secret direct route through the forest to Ta Lo. Wen Wu says that the path only opens up on a specific day of the year, and that he now knows the route and the day on which it opens. He plans to leave in three days' time to bring Li back from Ta Lo, and he intends his children to come with him. And if the citizens of Ta Lo won't let him open the gate, then he will burn their village to the ground. When Shang-Chi and Xiaoling protest, Wenwu has them locked up along with Katie. All right, 
dude is a few fries short of a happy meal. I tell you, there are so many things in the MCU that, if you use them too long, will either kill you or make you go crazy. It's insane. You've got the palladium in Iron Man's first arc reactor, the pim particles, and now apparently the ten rings. Well, power corrupts, as the saying goes. But also, this isn't everything, too, like the conspiracy of having uh, someone operating from the shadows with impunity for centuries and centuries. It's the same thing. Like, what's the... Isn't that the ring in Lord of the Rings? Uh, that's true. That's the one thing I know. That and the eyeball. The little eye in the sky. Isn't there... I mean, that happens in, like, Star Wars, too, yeah? Well, I guess you could the say dark that. Side. Yeah, the dark side. The dark side of the forest just yeah. kind of, yeah, eats gnaws away at you over your lifetime. Yep. One of those... Go to storytelling. So you're the one who made the Star. You're the one who made I the Star am. Wars reference and a Lord of the Rings reference. Yeah, wow. and they were all ac- and they were all accurate. Hey. Well done, well done. Thank you, thank you. I'm here all week. Down in the dungeon, Shang Chi, Xiaoling, and Katie happen upon an open cell. They go in and discover Trevor Slattery, the actor who pretended to be a terrorist known as the Mandarin way back in Iron Man Three. The Ten Rings broke him out of prison only to make him yet another prisoner of Wen Wu, who was not happy about Trevor's part in appropriating his identity. He was about to execute Trevor, but he found Trevor amusing and now uses him as a sort of court jester. Locked up with Trevor is a small, six-legged, furry, winged, faceless, mystical creature, a Di Zhang according to Chinese legend, who he has named Morris. Only Trevor understands him. When Wu picked him up in the forest during one of his expeditions to find Ta Lo, Morris says that he knows who Shang-Chi is and wants him to take Morris home. Apparently, Morris knows of a way through the mystical forest and into Ta Lo that can be traveled on any day, but it is extremely dangerous. It's funny because apparently Di Zhang is the personification of Hundun, the Chinese god of chaos. Hundun sounds an awful lot like the Chinese word Huntun, with a T instead of a D, the English version of which is wonton, as in the soup. And yet there is apparently no connection whatsoever between the two words. Anyway, very fun to see Sir Ben Kingsley return as Trevor Slattery. It actually kind of makes sense to me to have him show up, given the connection between Iron Man 3 and this film. In fact, there is a Marvel one-shot short film called All Hail the King, which originally appeared on the DVD and Blu-ray releases of Thor The Dark World, I think, but which you can also stream now on Disney+. Plus. It's all about Slattery being in prison and then being broken out by the Ten Rings. Some folks I've talked to think he's overused in this film. I disagree. I don't think his presence overshadows anything in this movie at all. While Aquafina obviously provides a great deal of comic relief in this film, She's also an integral player in the story, and thus she has to step out of that comedic role frequently. Trevor provides us with a very different type of comic relief from time to time throughout the rest of the film. And as such, I think he fits in just fine. I don't remember what I said in our review for Iron Man 3, but I hope I said that I think Trevor Slattery is kind of like a silly character, like too silly. Frankly, I think he belongs with like Ant-Man and the rest of those other silly weirdos. I do think he's better in this movie though. I don't mind him as much here. That's pretty harsh, but I'm pretty sure I said I must right. have. I must have said something before. We'll have to go back and check. You, you probably I had you probably to did. I had to. You, you probably did. Xiaoling busts through a wall to the underground tunnel system that she used to escape all those years ago and leads everyone to the garage. She steals the keys to Razor Fist's SUV. Notice how she also takes the entire key box with her. 
very clever. And she, Shang-Chi, Katie, Trevor, and Morris all pile in, with Katie driving, of course. They begin driving through the ridiculously large garage, chased by the Ten Rings guys on motorcycles, and with Shang-Chi and Xiaoling fighting them off. They're able to nab one of them, haul him into the car, and put his hand against the handprint reader, allowing them to leave the garage. So the guys coming after them have these batons or spears with glowing blue ends on them. They're clearly energy weapons of a type. Could this be from stolen Chitari tech? For that matter, I'm wondering if Razor Fist's blade is similar. This does make me wonder if the Ten Rings, Hydra, Red Room aren't all, like, connected. All the organizations? Yeah. Like, just sharing their tech and their bad deeds and everything. <laughs> and then, like, the agree- the contract that they have with each other is, like, you can claim that you are the one in charge and <laughs> I won't like- come after you. <laughs> It's like it's like the five. It's like it's like the you know like the the, the mob or something. It's like the Cosa Nostra. It's like the five families or something. Yeah, like, like when they that. have an agreement with each other. I wonder if that's like what's going on here. A weird honor among thieves kind of thing. That's an interesting idea. With Morris providing directions through Trevor, Katie drives them through the perilous maze-like forest pathway, with the forest ready to swallow them up if they make one false move. They make it through the forest and enter a waterfall which transports them across dimensions to the land of Talo, a mystical land populated by mythical creatures out of Chinese lore, such as nine-tailed foxes, more Dijong like Morris, guardian lions, and Qilin, the horse that has a dragon's head. They drive through a clearing to a village located by a lake, with a massive mountain on the other side of the water. The citizens of this village are all standing in the clearing, awaiting the group's arrival. We could honestly probably give Talo its own section in the character's part of the show. I love Talo. It looks so cool. My only complaint is that it is so clearly done on a soundstage with a green screen. And yeah, I know that's how most of the MCU movies are done, but it's just so obvious here that they're not actually outside in the nature. And it's kind of sad, I think. You could have shot some of that outside and it's 2023 back then 2021 but like we have the tech to make it look good and you spent millions of dollars and it just I don't think it looks as good as it could have been also I like in this scene before they reach Tallow but after they've made it through the deadly forest part Xiaoling has the most expressive like what the actual heck was that face and I absolutely love her for that like she's seen tons of crazy stuff but she still freaks out here appropriately so I think most of Talo actually was shot outside. It doesn't look the, like the, it. The, the building, well, the, 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 a lot of the scenery is probably CGI, but the buildings themselves were actually constructed. If you watch some of the, the special features, either on Disney Plus or on the Blu-ray or whatever, uh, I know they eventually, they, they wrapped in, in Sydney, Australia. They may have shot some of this in Atlanta where most of the Marvel films are shot, but I know they built the buildings outside. Some of it just didn't look good. Like, there were parts where, like, Shang-Chi and Xiaoling were talking to their aunt, and it's so very obvious. It just looks so poor. Well, well the things like the trees and the mountains, yes, were, were done C- were, were CGI. And, you know, I guess I've just kind of come to expect that. I think it looks really good for, for what it is. For a couple hundred million dollars, though, when it- we've seen better <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> That's true. The aforementioned Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was probably, even though I never, I never loved that movie the way most people did. That was definitely shot on location, outside 
in a lot of those settings. And so totally see where you're coming from. That film was released in what, 2000, I guess shot in the late nineties. I would say that's, that's one of the things that I think like makes this movie less good. It's one of the things that gives it a hit and makes it not even higher up for me. That so much of it was shot. Yeah. Against a green screen. Yeah. That's fair. But regard to what you said about Talo, for the most part, in terms of how beautiful and fantastic looking it is, I agree completely. We've seen some pretty wild-looking environments before in the MCU, and I guess I'm thinking mostly of Ego's planet and Guardians 2 in particular. But this is the first time we've seen this kind of mystical fantasy realm, like something out of a children's book in the MCU. And I still think for for all of its you know occasional occasional obvious fakeness, I still think it looks fantastic. Shang Chi identifies himself and Zha Ling as Ying Li's children, plus Katie. But the leader of the group in front of them, Guang Bo, tells them to go home before turning their arms on them. A woman emerges from behind the gathering and orders them all to stand down. She identifies herself as Ying Nan, Li's sister, Shang Chi's and Zha Ling's aunt. Nan gives the group a Talo history lesson. Thousands of years ago, the people in the realm of Talo lived in peace across its many cities until a creature called the Dweller in Darkness came to enslave the souls of all the inhabitants, thus increasing their power. After he and his armies laid waste to Talo's largest cities, he prepared to enter our realm until the Great Protector emerged and joined forces with the remains of Talo's defense forces who had all relocated to the village where everyone is now in order to guard the portal to our realm. Together, they forced the Dweller in Darkness and his forces into the Dark Gate in the mountain across the water from the village and locked it. Nan's people have remained in the village to watch the Dark Gate and guard the passage to our realm, imbued with the Great Protector's magic and her gift of dragon scales, which the people of Tal-Lo now use to fashion nearly impenetrable armor and weapons. Everyone's got nearly impenetrable armor and weapons made out of fancy rocks and dragon scales these days. It's the in thing. Shang-Chi informs Nan that their dad is on his way to free what he thinks is their mother from the Dark Gate. She tells him that all those who previously tried to break into the Dark Gate were similarly lured by voices from within the gate, telling them that liberating them would bring them their greatest desires. The Dweller in Darkness knows that Wenwu has the Ten Rings, and that they have the power to open the gate. Nan then takes Shang-Chi and Zha Ling to the shrine to their mother, where she gives them each a special suit of armor made of dragon scales, gifts that Li requested be made for the two children and given to them one day. And so we welcome Michelle Yeoh back to the MCU, this time in a role in which she actually gets to do something. Her first appearance being that quick cameo in Guardians 2 as Alita Ogord. As I alluded to at the top of the program, the timing of this recording is uncanny, as Michelle Yeoh won an Oscar just a few weeks back for her performance in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And she is just amazing. She is, in my opinion, an international treasure, to be sure. Just think, how awesome would it be to have her as an aunt? She just radiates love and strength in equal measure, and it makes me feel so good for Shang-Chi and Zha Ling that they have her. Even Katie gets a warm hug from her. You know it's who's so also nice. a hottie? Nan. Oh, don't you know it. <laughs> Michelle, uh, Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh still, she still looks, okay, said just for the moment, we all know what a fantastic actor she is. And what a great. No, yeah. The ath- guy who plays Wu is she, a great actor too, what a great but he's also she hot. Is. Michelle Yeoh. Uh, Michelle Yeoh. Oh my gosh. I remember. I, I, you know, I'm a James Bond fan. 
and I love Pierce Brosnan as a Bond, but he, in my opinion, he was a great Bond who had, for the most part, lousy films. And Tomorrow Never Dies is one of my least favorite James Bond films, except for Michelle Yeoh, who makes a fantastic Bond girl, and she's just, oh, she is just hot in that movie. Oh, I feel like going, I should go back and watch it tonight just to, just to see her. I also really like the quick scene with Katie being taken to Guangbo to become an archer. She comments to the woman who brings her to him that she's really impressed with how folks in Ta Lo pick one thing and spend their entire lives getting really good at it and how it's something she wishes she could do rather than quitting and moving on to something else when she gets moderately good at it because she thinks it will be ultimately disappointing. It's kind of like the flip side of everything Katie said toward the beginning of the film, especially in the apartment. I always had the sense that while she may really be satisfied doing what she's doing at first, you know, parking cars or the garage or driving a bus, Maybe deep down inside, she longs for a greater sense of purpose and meaning in her life. And I don't think that's just a first generation born of Chinese immigrants thing. I think that's a human thing. Is Katie a real character from the comics or was she created for the movie? I'm reasonably sure she was created just for the movie. Maybe even maybe even specifically as a vehicle for Aquafina. I'm not sure about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Then we get a quick training montage. Nan gives Xiaoling a cool rope dart with a dragon-scaled dart. Katie trains with the other archers and turns out to have some skills. Shang-Chi seeks out Nan and asks her to show him how his mom beat his dad during their first encounter. They start off with him seemingly taking on the role of his father and Nan playing the part of his mother. They fight, and each time Nan is able to counter everything Shang-Chi can throw at her. She then begins to walk him through her style, and he slowly begins to have more success after adopting that style himself. She tells him that he is a product of all who came before him, both the good and the bad, and that he needs to stop hiding because it only prolongs the pain. Yeah, you can make an argument that we've seen all this before or that it's cliche, but I just think it's presented so beautifully in this film. And I'm talking about both the visual component with the balletic martial arts stuff as well as the emotional seeking one's identity stuff. Michelle Yeoh is just too good at both of those things. And Simu Liu just has this natural charisma that allows you to look past the very Disney-esque aspects of the picture and I think really draws you into his journey. I do really like this whole scene, but I could not help but wonder who in the world thought of rope darts? Like, because what if you chop your head off? If you stop paying it, because it's like a lasso, but with death on the other end. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I suppose so. Razor fist, one wrong move, and goodbye other arm. I know. <laughs> goodbye, I, goodbye foot. It made, it made me so nervous. I thought it was pretty cool. No, it was cool. It was just also nerve-wracking. Shang-Chi has a moment by himself, and he thinks back to the night his mother died. With his father away... Men from the Iron Gang came to the compound, seeking revenge for Wen Wu having tried to destroy them in years past. Shang-Chi watches as his mother tries to fight them off, but is ultimately killed. Wen Wu returns to see Shang-Chi hovering over the slain Li. After having let them lie dormant for roughly ten years, Wen Wu puts the Ten Rings back on and vows vengeance on the Iron Gang. We cut to Wen Wu taking Shang-Chi to a seedy mahjong parlor. Wen Wu then very casually 
but methodically, straight up murders several members of the Iron Gang present, with a very young and clearly very terrified Shang-Chi watching. When Wu turns to his son and tells him that, quote, a blood debt has to be paid by blood, will you help me? Shang-Chi reluctantly agrees, and they walk away. And with that, we officially welcome Wen Wu to the MCU Bad Dads Club. This scene made my top five saddest moments in the MCU back in episode 27, just a few shows back. It just confounds me. You know, maybe sickens me is a more apt descriptor. How anyone could indoctrinate a child, let alone their own child, into that kind of life. And I'm sure it happens all the time which in real life, which just makes it even more sad. Well, you aren't a centuries-old all-powerful warrior. I'm thinking regular people like you and me might have different standards when it comes to parenting. Well, I don't know. I have the feeling that would happen today among people who aren't centuries-old powerful warriors. Me and my fleeting faith in humanity. Flash forward to the moment when 14-year-old Shang-Chi is being sent on his first assignment. We learn that he is being sent to kill the man who killed his mother, and that his father plans to rebuild the Ten Rings upon his return. Back in the present, Katie joins Shang-Chi and tells her that he lied when he told her he didn't go through with the hit his father sent him on. Furthermore, he says that his mother would still be alive if not for his father. Reiterating his father's a blood debt must be paid by blood mantra, he tells Katie that he plans to be what his father trained him to be, and kill his father when he arrives. At dawn, the warriors of Ta Lo prepare for battle as Wen Wu and his forces enter the kingdom. Katie is also preparing to fight, but Guangbo tells her to stay behind because she's not ready. You know, I love how even the guardian lions get those cool dragon scale collars. I imagine those lions are pretty rare. You want to hold on to those for as long as you can. <laughs> They do. They're, they are some of my favorite creatures. They might actually be my favorite creature in all of Talo. The, they're the pretty lions, cool. Yeah. The lions, because they, they did, I think they did a real good job with the fur. You know, I'm sure there were whole team. There were probably whole teams whose sole job was to make guardian lion fur look good. My hats off to them. After the obligatory tense standoff, the Ten Rings attack. There's lots of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Amidst the chaos, Shang-Chi sees his father casually walking towards the shrine to his mother, so he follows him in, and they begin to fight. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but when Shang-Chi and... I wrote his Wenwu. I meant to say his father, but whatever. His, his Wenwu. Wen <laughs> um, I don't know if you noticed, but when Shang-Chi and his dad are talking at first, there's that wide shot of the two of them at the shrine, and there are these two tapestries in the doorway that are, like, shimmering on their own. It almost looks like those sequin shirts and backpacks that kids have now, the ones where you can flip them up and down to change the image. I just thought oh. it, it looked cool <laughs> in the background. Probably made a dragon scale. Probably. Everything else in the movie is. Wen Wu clearly has the upper hand at first. He accuses Shang-Chi of spending his entire life running and hiding, and lambasts him for standing by and watching while his mother was murdered. This gets Shang-Chi mad, so he fights back much harder. Nonetheless, Wen Wu is able to subdue him rather quickly and knock him into the lake. He then uses the rings to propel him over the lake to the Black Gate. He uses the rings to start pounding away at the gate, which is covered in dragon scales. One of those scales stops glowing red, and a small soul eater is able to crawl out and fly towards the village. I feel like it took a lot of time movie-wise to really show us how angry Shang-Chi is with his dad. Before 
his talk with Katie and this fight, it felt like maybe he was just sort of lukewarm towards him, that he didn't like him. Of course, that was clear, but he's really mad during this fight. And I don't know. I wonder where that's been this whole time, because it didn't really feel like this before. I think it's possible that he's been repressing that anger all this time. For the longest time, his first instinct was simply to run and hide. And he was only 14 when he made that decision. And he was probably scared out of his mind and not fully aware of what the hell he was doing, especially since he had just killed somebody. Maybe for the first time in his life, Shang-Chi feels empowered with regard to his father at this point in time. And maybe for the first time, he's he's finally permitting himself to feel that anger, despite the fact that he is, as Wenwu said, afraid of his father. I mean, he, he clearly is. He does make really good terrified faces. <laughs> Simu? Yeah. <laughs> I think him and uh, whoever it is that plays Zhao Ling, really good expressive faces. Oh, yeah. Meng, Meng Zhang. They're both, they're both so good in this movie. Nan and Zhao Ling try to convince Razor Fist that they have to join forces to stop what's coming out of the gate. Now that Wenwu has breached it, Razor Fist refuses to believe that something bad is behind the gate, until one of the Soul Eaters sucks the soul out of the Death Dealer. Razor Fist then orders the Ten Rings to stop fighting and work with the people of Talo to stop the Soul Eaters and the Dweller in Darkness. So, how can I put this delicately and constructively? Razor Fist comes off like such a dumb sack of shit. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I really think it's embarrassing. The mighty Ten Rings, indeed. Wen Wu, still deluded into thinking that Li is calling for him to release her from behind the Black Gate, continues to pound away at it, releasing more Soul Eaters. Shang-Chi sinks deeper into the lake. As he does, he recalls his mother telling him, just before she died, that he had the heart of a dragon, and that both she and his father were always with him, and that she should take everything they have given him and make it his own. Shang-Chi then awakens to see a great dragon before him under the water, the Great Protector. Moments later, the Great Protector flies out of the water with Shang-Chi astride him. They attack the incoming Soul Eaters and are soon joined by the Defenders of Tao Lo and the Ten Rings. A never-ending story oh, The never-ending story <laughs> I didn't realize that uh, I didn't realize that people were still watching that movie. Oh, I loved that movie when I was a kid. That dragon was so cool. I don't know if I've ever seen it in its entirety. Oh, I know you're we had out. It's such a we good had movie. It, my, I think we had it on VHS because my sister I think really liked it, but I don't know if I ever watched it. For all much. my complaints of the garbage CGI and you know utilizing effects studios so that you don't have to pay union workers, blah blah blah, all on on all that stuff. Disney's bad. Anyway, never-ending story, very good quality for a movie made in 1984. You know, the haters go on about how the ending it's of this me, movie- It's me, I'm a hater. It's just, yes, you are. <laughs> it's just like every other Marvel movie, a big, bloated, effects-heavy action set piece. I don't care. <laughs> I freaking love this movie, and I love this entire scene. The whole film is supposed to be derived from wushu cinema and historical fantasy, so yeah, you're gonna see dragons flying around, and lots of people doing martial arts, and they get a Marvel budget to do it with? Are you kidding? Visually, it's fantastic and beautiful and amazing to me. Shang-Chi arrives at the Black Gate and confronts his father once more. Only this time, he steps back and uses his mother's fighting technique as taught to him by his auntie Nan. 
He's more in control now and is faring considerably better in the fight than back at the village. Wen Wu fires five of the rings at Shang-Chi, but rather than hurting him, Shang-Chi is able to take control of them. They are orbiting him and obeying his commands. They also turn orange when in Shang-Chi's possession, as opposed to blue when Wen Wu has them. They continue to fight, with each one set of rings clashing with the other, until Wen Wu finally gets a solid hit on his son, who tumbles to the ground. Wen Wu fires his five remaining rings at him. When the dust settles, we see Shang-Chi emerge from the rubble, now controlling all ten of the rings. One ring to rule them all, or five to ten rings, as it would seem here. Ten rings to rule your mind if you hang on to them for a thousand years. He gathers them together in a massive ball of energy. Those of you who practice Tai Chi will notice that it's reminiscent of the gathering chi into a ball posture. Seemingly ready to use it to finish off his father, Shang-Chi fires the rings at the ground and lets them lie there, symbolizing that he will not be the murderer his father trained him to be. Moments later, the Black Gate explodes and the Dweller in Darkness emerges. It charges at Shang-Chi, but at the last second, Wenwu summons the rings to him and uses them to push Shang-Chi out of the way, saving his life. But it also allows the Dweller to grab Wenwu and begin to take his soul. As his soul and his life force are drained out of him, Wen Wu performs one final act of honor and sends the Ten Rings to Shang-Chi, who is now their sole possessor. The Dweller is about to attack Shang-Chi when the Great Protector arrives and defends him with Xiaoling astride him. Shang-Chi collapses what's left of the Black Gate to keep any more soul suckers from escaping before hopping onto the Great Protector and heading back to the village. The two dragons fight, with the Great Protector summoning the waters of the lake to drown the Dweller in Darkness. But too many soul suckers have escaped and taken souls from the fight in the village. They feed the Dweller with them, and it becomes re-energized. Guangbo and Katie watch from the village. He tells her that if the Dweller gets the Great Protector's soul, that it's all over. He urges her to aim for the Dweller's throat before he himself is taken by a soul sucker. The Dweller gets a hold of the Great Protector and begins to take its soul. Xiaoling falls off the Great Protector during the fight, but Shang-Chi is able to grab her by the arm. She urges him to let go of her so he can deal with the Dweller in darkness, but he refuses to abandon her again. When all seems lost, an arrow fired by Katie strikes the Dweller in the throat, its most vulnerable spot thus buying time for the Great Protector to get away. With the help of Xiaoling, Shang-Chi jumps onto the Dweller and fires the rings into its chest. He then wills them to pull apart, making the Dweller in Darkness explode. Just epic. Truly epic. The MCU just got its new superhero, and I think he's pretty damn cool. I know we're having, like, a serious moment in the movie here, but how do you think they created the screeching for the dragons? I kind of hope that there's some voice actor out there who makes dragon noises. Well, you know, since Benedict Cumberbatch has A, played a dragon before, and B, is on Marvel's payroll, maybe they enlisted him. Maybe. That'd be kind of funny. There's pro- I'm sure there's a voice actor whose sole job it was just to... Resume. Experience? Dragon noises. Dragon noises. Shang-Chi and Katie return to San Francisco and are out with friends, when a portal opens up in the restaurant where they're eating. Wong emerges and summons Shang-Chi and Katie back to Kamartage. In a mid credit sequence, Shang-Chi and Katie watch as Wong, along with Bruce Banner and Carol Danvers, both of whom appear via hologram, are analyzing the Ten Rings. None of them have any idea what they are, where they came from, or what they are made of. They're not in any of the Mystics' Codex, 
They aren't vibranium, and they aren't of any alien species that Carol knows of. Wong says that the first time Shang-Chi used them, he felt it in Kamertage. He then shows an image of the rings radiating some sort of signal, like a beacon. Guys, stay safe, and welcome to the circus, says Bruce. Shang-Chi, Katie, and Wong then go out for karaoke. In a post credit sequence, Zha Ling has assumed control of the Ten Rings organization. Oh, she's so cool. This scene is so cool. I want to be like her when I grow up. Out with the old. It's so cool. And with the new. And that's it for our summary of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and the main part of our review. All right, so I have not thought through any of these. And I actually, I should probably look up Florian Muntianu. I think he might have been a like an MMA fighter or something like that. He's quite tall. Him, I want to look him up. Before, oh, he's German. He's from he's, he's he's from Germany, but he's of Romanian. Also known by his ring name, Big Nasty. because <laughs> oh, he's a big dude. God damn, he he was born in Germany, and but he's of Romanian it. of Romanian descent. Uh, doesn't give. Oh come on, it should. I don't see his vital stats here, but. He was there. He is ring name. It was a role in a boxer. Oh, he played. He played. He played Victor Drago in Creed two. Now I gotta go see Creed two. It says it right um, on Google. Six four. Okay, he's six four. Okay, Tall so boy. he's about. He's an inch taller than me. Probably okay. like two or three times your weight. <laughs> uh, easily, yeah. Um, he grew up. So he looks like he's a boxer. He was a boxer. He really was a boxer, and then he got uh, recruited for uh, to be in Creed Two. Interesting. I kind of okay. thought he was fun. <laughs> the Mighty Ten Rings. Can we count just, that as I, talking about him? We can just like cross him off the characters list now. Yeah, but we didn't. Oh, I thought that was all off. I thought that was all off, Mike. I guess we can. Nope, it's That's in a, Mike. I've decided. Okay, so we already talked about Florian Montiano as Razor Fist. I like him. Still a relatively inexperienced actor. He's a boxer by training and by trade. But he does the job effectively, I think. Anyway, going back to the head of our characters and actors list is, of course, Simu Liu as Zhu Shang-Chi slash Sean. Simu Liu's story has just become so... He's just become such a such a celebrity over the last you know, two years. His story is quite amazing. Here he is, you know, emigrated from China when he was a kid to Canada. He ended up getting a job as an accountant because that's kind of what his parents were pushing him to do. He becomes an accountant. He hated it. He gave it up and said, I want to be an actor, much to his parents' chagrin, but he pursued it. And he got a job on a Canadian sitcom, which I have not seen, but I've heard great things about, called Kim's Convenience, which wrapped up recently. And the next thing you know, he's kind of plucked out of semi-obscurity to become someone who will undoubtedly become one of the next Avengers. <laughs> and I think he's fantastic in this role. He's just he's just got this incredible likability. He's very charismatic. He just carries himself well. He's just kind of fun to watch. Like I said earlier in the show, he had absolutely no martial arts training whatsoever when he started. And he just freaking worked out and practiced and trained and he looks, by the time he's done, he, you, you can't tell that he'd never done martial arts several months prior to that. He looks like a pro. He looks like a veteran. And he just carries that off so well. He looks amazing. 
and I am really looking forward not only to seeing him in whatever Shang-Chi sequel or Kang Dynasty or whatever his next Marvel project is, I'm looking forward to see him and to see his work uh, in all media in the future. I think the the trailer the trailer for uh, the Barbie movie just dropped, and I know he plays a prominent role as one of the Kens in that. So that I, I actually I actually kind of would like to see that film. I think what I really like about Shang Chi as a character, again, you know how I feel about trying too hard to be silly. I think he is funny, and he's got good character growth and good character development without it being too much. And I think especially because he's a regular dude, if you can count having his father and like the whole upbringing thing like he's a regular dude like Ant-Man was a regular dude before but I think it's just done way better here obviously because I put it so high up on my list compared to Ant-Man I wonder though if maybe part of that is because of Simu because like he was a regular person before he you know was an accountant he grew up normal life probably never thinking that he would actually get to fulfill his dream of being an actor and then he got to do it and so I wonder if maybe he brings like that relatability that real person-ness to it I don't know I Mm -hmm. I am doing a poor job of explaining it but no I think that's a great I think you're doing a great job explaining it him a lot because of that he's definitely got charisma and he's likable but the reason he is so likable I think is because like you said he's very relatable I've taken a little bit of acting in years past and I remember one of my instructors telling me that some of the best acting is when you're just kind of being yourself some of the best acting in the world is very subtle and I think Simu Liu that's his modus operandi that's how he works and I think that's why his performance is as good as it is he's not trying to act the best actors don't try to act and that's exactly what Simu Liu does he just he, he is being himself he is simply being he's not trying to act and I think that's that's the strength of his performance We move on to Aquafina as Katie. I don't really engage in the fandom as it is, but I feel like a lot of people didn't slash don't like Aquafina, and I think that put them off of this movie. But I didn't mind her. Sometimes I thought she was a little too dramatic, and then sometimes too under dramatic. Like how quickly she accepted, "Oh yeah, we're gonna go walk out on the scaffolding." But then other times she would go over the top for things that maybe didn't need that. But otherwise, like, I thought she was fine. Aquafina was, at that time, aside from the pandemic delaying things a bit, was coming off of, from what I recall, a pretty, a pretty, pretty powerful string of hits. I know she was in Crazy Rich Asians and she had a sort of a string of hits at that time. And I know she was a very heavily sought after actor. And so to land her was quite a coup. When I first heard that she was having seen some of that work, when I first heard that she was going to be in the film, before I saw it, I was admittedly a little hesitant. I was a little, I was really kind of afraid that she was going to turn into, what's the, what's the phrase? I, I read, I read someone somewhere like that she was going to be quote, (laughs) the Asian Kevin Hart. (laughs) on this kind of irritating person who just talks really fast. And occasionally you do get glimpses of that. But for the most part, I I really liked her in this film. I was I was pleasantly surprised. I I don't think that she overwhelmed us with Aquafina the comedian, but I think we got just enough of her to make it work. When she sees Shang-Chi doing all this stuff and she's just kind of dumbfounded. She has no idea that he could do all these martial arts things. And all the stuff that she sees in this, you know, short span of time, and you know, her response is, "A dude with a machete for an arm just sawed our bus in half," <laughs> and it's the way she says it 
it makes sense. I would have been kind of floored too. I would have been, what the hell just happened? And I think she, I think she does a really good job in this film. I think she was able to rein in the sort of the over the topness perfectly. And she, she gives it to us when we need it. And she pulls it back when she needs to pull it back. And I think some of the more dramatic, serious stuff she carries off really well. The introspective stuff about what one does for a living or getting good at something or having a purpose in life. I think she plays that stuff. I thought she played that stuff uh, quite well. I was really impressed. Menger Zhang as Zhe Zhaling. And I have the feeling Emily is going to want to talk about Zhaling first. I feel like in a lot of movies, especially probably a lot of Marvel movies, that they'll create or have a secondary female character that is coded to be ambitious and strong and defying stereotypes, but it's just done in like a garbage way. I don't think that's what happened here. I think they actually did it really well. I think she is a good, like well-done, well-written, ambitious female character. And she's cool. I think they deliberately, and I agree with their creative choice in doing this, they present her up front as being this kind of stereotypical badass, beat the crap out of all the guys, tough chick kind of character. But then she had an opportunity to grow. But then she has an opportunity, exactly, she has an opportunity to grow. They don't give that opportunity to other female characters. It's very rare. Yeah. And they give her the opportunity to grow. They give her the opportunity to show vulnerability, which I think is is key to making what I consider a true, quote unquote, strong female character. They have to not just be headstrong and physically strong and mentally strong and willful. I think it helps to be vulnerable because that's also part of that's part of the human experience. And vulnerability, I think, makes you stronger. It opens you up to things and makes you reconsider reconsider things and not make you go march stupidly into danger without thinking. And you get that you get a sense of vulnerability from her because she's hurting too. Shang-Chi left her behind. It's like, you left me behind. I had to fend for myself. I had to teach myself all that stuff because dad wouldn't train me. Mom and dad wouldn't train me. I had to learn on my own. I had to survive while you were gone. And I left. I started this fight club on my own. This is mine. I had to do all this. But at the same time, she's very upset by that. She's very sad. She's it, it, it hurts her that she had to give all that stuff up. It hurt her to, to lose her brother for all that time. And I think I think Menger Zhang pulls that off really well. She does she, I think she manages all aspects of that character quite effectively and presents them really well. I have no doubt, I have no doubt that we are going to be seeing Zhaling and the Ten Rings in the future in some really neat stuff. I'm kind of hoping we see her in maybe something like, like Thunderbolts. It just kind of it just kind of sounds like that's where she will make her next appearance. Maybe even in maybe even in Captain America: New World Order. I don't know. Oscar winner Michelle Yeoh as Ying Nan. I think we already said quite a bit about Michelle Yeoh during the show, so I'm not sure what else there is to say. Michelle Yeoh is fantastic. She's She's amazing in everything that she's in. She had a banner couple of years doing a, a bunch of projects between this and Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's probably no secret I don't like Star Trek Discovery, but I thought she, during the time that she was on that show, I thought she was very interesting to watch and fun to watch in the role that she had. She's been doing a lot of great work for a very long time, and maturity has only made her better in some ways. She's an even better actor now than she was then, and she was quite good back then. I think she's an incredible martial artist. I think she's beautiful. She has just an incredible grace and gravitas and presence. Like I said, she makes it. She'd make a great aunt. It's so be so cool to have her as an aunt. She's 
she's strong and can kick your ass, but at the same time, there's a gentleness to the way she goes about things, and the way she talks to you is just very reassuring and soothing. I kind of wish I had her as an aunt. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. I like her. I like the character in that it feels like, again, in other movies in other marvel movies in particular that there's always like a secondary adult figure like an uncle figure an aunt figure but they're kind of also bad (laughs) and i like that her whole thing was that she was undeniably a good influence on both of them and she didn't die no that was kind of another thing you see those characters and you can almost instantly think okay they're dead meat or they didn't go full evil like obadiah well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sir Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery. I, I think I've said everything I need to say about Trevor and Ben Kingsley. It didn't bother me as much that he was in this movie. It, I didn't think he was too much. I thought he was in the movie just the right amount. I thought he brought just the right amount of comic relief without going over the top or being stupid. And it's it's Ben Kingsley. I, just, I can't bring myself to say anything bad about Ben Kingsley. <laughs> I do like how they tied it together with the story from Iron Man 3. I would have been disappointed if they hadn't. You, yeah, you I remember when it, with the title, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I was like, are we just going to retcon <laughs> what happened before? Like, what? Because I don't know anything about the comics. So it was funny to see it tied back together. I did like it like when he and Katie were talking in, I think it was the front seat of the SUV during the when they're heading to Talo. Because you've got these two comic characters two characters who are there ostensibly to provide comic relief, but they're both very different. You've got Trevor, who's this goofy, off-the-wall, probably done an awful lot of drugs in his lifetime, non-sequitur-spouting actor, as he calls himself. And then you've got Katie, who's very young and hip and just very spontaneous. And what little they did play off each other, I thought it worked. It could very easily have backfired miserably, but I thought it worked. Finally, we have Tony Leung as Zhu Wenwu. I know Emily likes him. Yeah, I don't have anything deep to say. He's he's a hottie. <laughs> I need to go back and fix the blind spot in my cinematic knowledge and watch some films with Tony Leung. Because as I said before, he's very well regarded, well respected in Asian film circles. And I think he's great in this film. I like him in this movie a lot. The, he does a lot as do many great actors. A lot of the emotion he conveys is in the eyes. When he thinks he hears Lee calling to him from Ta Lo, or when he comes home and she's dead, or even when he first meets her. That first encounter, at first he's trying to defeat her and take over and because he wants to conquer Ta Lo, but he falls in love with her. And you can see gradually over the course of that fight him softening up. You can kind of see this smile across his face and he softens up. And yet at other times in the film when he's visibly shaken or upset or dare I even say sad, the look in his eyes is very is very expressive. And I think that's, that is a great, a great acting tool. And Tony Leung uses it very well. We talked about music a little bit already. I think the score by Joel West is lovely. A lot of Asian themes in that music that are played to good effect. We talked about the other soundtrack album put together by 88 Rising with all the contemporary music. Especially when the movie first came out, I played that album to death. I I loved it so much, only having listened to it maybe once, I, I gifted it to Emily to give to her. It's a cool album. And so that concludes our review of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. 
next time, which will probably be a couple months from now, knowing us, hopefully, hopefully not. Soon. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. But life always seems to get in the, the way. When we recorded last, it was like February, probably, and now it's April. It was right after. It was right after I had COVID, so it was middle of. It was like middle of February. And it's now the middle of April. Hopefully before I leave for vacation in June, we get around to returning to the world of Disney Plus shows in the MCU. We will be reviewing The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, the first part of that series. I think we'll, we'll probably break each one up into three episodes. It's, it's a six-episode series. So our next show will be Falcon and the Winter Soldier Part 1, Episodes 1, 2, and 3. Looking forward to that. That's one of my favorite shows. Until then, thank you all for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Keep yourselves safe. Be kind to each other. And we will see you on the flip side. Thank you for listening. Have a good night. Have a good night.